0: Welcome back to The Rated Change with York Wealth Management. As advisors to some of the wealthiest families in the country, The Rated Change is a podcast designed to help you in the pursuit of building long-term wealth through the insights of some of the brightest minds in asset management. I'm your host, Murdoch Gaddy, and in today's broadcast, we're speaking with Hugh Selby-Smith, the Co-Chief Investment Officer at Telaria Capital. Telaria Capital is a fundamental, bottom-up value manager with a unique implementation process Fire options. They run a single global ex-Australian investment strategy with 25 to 35 companies, max 40. They have a hedged and an unhedged portfolio, and this portfolio is executed across developed markets. Telaria roughly oversees $2.1 billion of funds under management since December, so that could have changed. For me, I enjoyed hearing Hugh break down their option strategy which creates income from option premiums, diversifies returns. But most interestingly was its ability to smooth out returns in volatile markets. Hugh's going to dig into it quite a bit. He's substantially better than myself in explaining it. But in particular, on average, they capture 71% of an upside move and they target to reduce roughly on average 34% less of a downside move. So how does this translate into returns? As of recording, the Talaria unhedged Global Equity Wholesale Fund has returned on average 7.55% since inception, 10.43% over five years, 14.46% three years, 15.07% for the past 12 months, and 4.54% over the past six months. So with that being said, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Hugh Selby-Smith, welcome to the Rate of Change with York Wealth Management.
1: Well, Matt, delighted to be here, and thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, really, really good to have you here. Um, Why don't we begin, as we always do, by telling us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got into the wild world of financial markets.
1: Well, I uh, grew up in Canberra and I had a summer job sort of in the last two weeks of December and early January where I would um, post through the letterbox, you know, that I would come and cut people's lawn and do their pool and collect their mail uh while they were away and you know all for the princely sum of i don't know three dollars a week or something like that so this was in the late 70s and uh i did that for a summer so it saved up some money and um i bought my first two shares and i guess that was a function of um seeing my father who was invested interested in in the stock market and uh didn't really know where to put the uh put the savings, so I could have probably got about 17% in the, in the bank, though um, at that time I didn't really recognise the relative value between the stock market, the bond market and, and cash rates in the same way that maybe I do now. And um, yeah, then I bought Repco and Mount Isa Mines and I then watched Mount Isa Mines in the back of the paper, you know, the, the AFR, um, where it was plus one, minus one. So it was sort of like the, the, the sports pages. And uh, Mount Isa mines promptly just went nowhere for about you know seven or eight years. But plus one was a really good day, and down one was a negative day. Um, so that was sort of the start um, of an interest, and then uh, you know started to get subscriptions to uh, to potential new equity raising. So things like Highland Gold. I remember um taking Woodside in the in the initial public offering, um. And then as I sort of moved forward, I was always interested in, in economics, I was always interested in decisions under uncertainty, though I probably wouldn't have been able to phrase it in those terms um, at the time. And um, in the 90s, uh, I'd moved to the UK, I moved to Oxford, and then I got a job in, in London, and I moved into financial markets. Um, and really, that's been my, my journey ever since.
0: Isn't it interesting how most people's journeys start with either a mail run, or I remember my old man, um, you know, ended up getting me a job in the next door neighbor's lawn, and that pretty much paid my phone bill for like six years through boarding school. Isn't it incredible how like you know it just starts from the simplest things, then you get a hunger for it, and then off you go. Do, would you say that the main interest for yourself was the entrepreneur side, as in like you know building the business, or did you just find the markets just fascinating and just wanted to get involved?
1: I think, you know, right at the start, it was probably a function of wanting to grow my wealth. You know, I mean, I didn't call it wealth then. I wanted a bit more money than I had, Um, you know, six weeks in the summer sun, um, dealing with pool chemicals and things like that. Uh, And listen, I was a really competitive person from a pretty young age. So I liked the idea that, you know, this was a place that everybody came and, and was able to put forward their ideas ultimately. And you know, as you, as you develop in sophistication, your analysis, um, and that there was ultimately an arbiter represented by the price. I think that, that was probably the first two components that got me into markets. Um, and clearly, my journey of education and, of course, you know, one of the great things over the course of my career is, and, and everybody, I think, who's, who's taken an interest in markets, is you do recognise that you're going to be better in five years' time than you are today. And I'm better today than I was five years ago or 20 years ago. And I think that that's a tremendous privilege if you're interested in learning, ideas, development. Um, because a lot of things in the world, certainly in professional world, but also personal world, you're the best you're ever going to be at 35 or 39. You know, my, my swimming times are coming down. <laughs> They're not going up, uh, for example. Or tennis, you know, you're not as good as you used to be. You might take as much pleasure from it. Um, and in professional sense, you know, the top chefs in the world are, are really the top chefs in, you know, mid mid to late 30s, right? They might be the best restaurateurs in their 50s, but they're no better chefs. That's different to financial markets. So I will be better uh, in the future than I am today because it's a constant evolution about, um, you know, learning about yourself, your biases and your process. And that's a, that's a really exciting thing. You know, it's a lifelong pleasure. Um, and challenge
0: as they say it's not the destination it's the journey and that's and the other thing which i've been doing this quite a bit like speaking to clients speaking to you know uh, very you know good investors like yourself and the one thing that i find so fascinating is you know if you just looked at paper how someone is today that's not how they got there it's this wild crazy goat path of a track of how they got there today but if they didn't take that path the lessons which they didn't learn before, they wouldn't be able to apply today and do as good as the job they're doing today. So when you're in when you're in the UK um, before um, you know Talaria uh, became a thing, what, what were you actually doing? Is, is it the same role? Were You running the same type of strategy, and then it you know it came across, or how did it work?
1: No, so um, I had uh, I moved into asset management at a company called TT International in London. Um, I'd been previously uh, uh, working at Goldman, Goldman Sachs in London and, and New York. And um, uh, Tim Taki, he had started Fidelity International, and then he'd run the European side of or, or European portion of, of George Soros's Capital. So he's one of the first um, macro hedge fund traders in in Europe, um, and then i worked in the core team of which there was about five of us running the long only institutional side of the business. So it was still a fundamental bottom up driven um, investment house from that perspective. It had expertise in in options, which I'm sure we'll get into in terms of the Telaria kind of process, but um, not explicitly in terms of the portfolios that I was running in, in uh, or contributing to at TT. Um, I think... Um, Also, listen, as we talked about, you refine and develop your own process as you go along in a journey. And I think, you know, TT probably had a greater emphasis on the momentum factor in terms of earnings momentum and upgrades and so on. And that's somewhat different to, and I'm talking about, you know, mid-2000s here, Um, the um, process that, you know, from a bottom-up part, um, bottom-up fundamental point of view um, that uh, has developed over the last 15 years of my career.
0: Yeah, let's let's definitely dig into that because there's probably a lot of listeners and, you know, clients and fund managers that, you know, definitely delve in the momentum side and, you know, investing in companies, you know, bottom-up. But the one reason why I wanted to have you guys and girls on is Talaria just does things differently. And it's a particular, uh, and I'll, look, I'll let you explain it, but the reason why I find this so interesting is with options you do have the ability to do some very interesting things protect your downside you know still participate, see you because no one knows what's happening in the next two months right you think it might happen, but will it happen right but the other thing as well is it sounds really simple but for people that have never done options changes before it's quite complicated and difficult to um, use accurately and effectively and do it without you know, and get sleep every single month when the rollovers come through. So, do you mind giving everyone a bit of color around who exactly is Telaria and the investment philosophy, and what is the investment strategy strategy which you guys and girls operate?
1: Sure, there's quite a few different questions there. So, do let, let's break it down. I mean, you know what? What Talaria is a is a global equity manager. We're a founder led business. Okay, we have a perpetual mindset where. Um, Uh, we only run a single strategy and the investable universe is everything ex-Australia though it must have a developed market listing because of the options implementation, which we'll unpack in a minute. Um, In terms of what we do then, we run kind of a, a relatively concentrated portfolio, 25 to 35 stocks, never more than 40 by mandate. We are all driven by the bottom up opportunity set. And what that means Murdoch, is we never sit there and say, Hey, uh consumer staples is a good good place to be in this environment um let's go and find a consumer staples company that conforms to our kind of our bottom up valuation process or you know switzerland's looking cheap let's find a swiss equity so it's really on a case-by-case basis um we're relatively anti short term so the securities we own in the portfolio is about well, average tenure is about three and a half years um uh so that's sort of where to locate us in the zoo, okay? And we run about $2.1, $2.2 billion on behalf of our clients. Of course, at the end of the day, we're paid a fee to work on their behalf and, and you know generate the consistent outcomes in which we are entrusted with our clients' money. So that's sort of who we are as a firm, what we do as a, as a strategy. Um, the point of unique difference is really how we enter into stocks. So our bottom-up process... You know, we're we're a value manager and what that means and why would we align strongly with value is there's seven of us in the investment team, over 130 years collective experience. And like all value managers, what we're trying to do, Murdoch, is come up with our best estimate. We call it the normalized cash returns, but people use different phrases, right? The mid-cycle earnings power and so on. Okay? Now, that's all done through the annual reports and financial statements, but the key thing that means that we align strongly with value, both from a factor perspective, but also just philosophically, is that whilst growth is an important component of valuation, as a forward factor, it's relatively weak historically looking at the data, okay? So we do a normalized cash return analysis off the existing asset base, and what that means is we won't pay for growth, because that would show up in, in the asset base, right? goodwill, be that tangibles or intangibles. Um, So that sort of is a true to label value um, approach. To be honest, Murdoch, us and the other 24,000 smartest people in the room who are true to label value are doing the same thing. You know, the way that I talk to clients about that is, listen, if you, Murdoch, were looking for a new accountant, you're going to switch from Deloitte and Ernst & Young and came in and told you, we do the accounts differently, that should not give you any confidence, right? I mean, numbers and process are numbers and process. Um, So so what I've talked about at the moment is really anybody true to label value, okay? As you said, the point of difference is really how we enter stocks, and that's the option component. So every global equity manager who, um, traditional long-only global equity manager, However, their process, once they've decided that they wish to buy the stock on behalf of their clients, would simply go into the market and buy their first, let's call it 1% position. And they'd execute that trade in the, in the market um, today. What we do is we sell a fully cash-backed and exchange-traded option, which is, which is typically about two months in duration. Okay. And what is an option when we sell it? It's a promise to take possession of a stock that we want to own. Okay. So this isn't an overlay, an options trading strategy. We're simply making a promise to take possession of the stock that, you know, is typically taken five to seven weeks work. And we've socialized in the team that we think we want to put into the portfolio on behalf of our clients. And in return for providing that promise to own an equity um, that we we want to take possession of, we get two things in return. Firstly, we get a lower. We get to commit to buy it at a lower price than it's trading at today. In a normalized environment, that's typically three to five percent lower. So, you know, assuming a stock's trading at one hundred, we can commit to buy it at say ninety-six dollars. And secondly, we're paid a premium for providing that effective insurance, okay? And we never do that at less than a fifteen percent annualized rate of return. So, let's say in stock trading at one hundred, we commit to buy it at ninety-six in two months' time. We might get paid um, three dollars. So think about it in three on ninety-six, effectively three percent for two months. You know that that's about um, so multiplied six times. So that would be an eighteen percent annualized rate of return. And in two months' time, simply only two things can happen: either the market's gone down, or the the results are perceived poorly by the market, and the stock's fallen over that two months from a hundred down to let's call it ninety-four dollars. In which case. The cash that's sitting there backing the commitment to buy the share moves across, and we take possession of our first one percent of the of the position. Um, and the premium of three dollars goes into the cost price, so we're effectively bought our first one percent position in that instance at ninety three dollars, and we would then write another option at, at you know ninety dollars until we got our target position size in in the equity. Or the market's gone up or the results are well well taken, in which case the stock's traded to 105, um, uh, in which case um, we simply keep, well, firstly, we would re-roll um, that option at 102 as long as there was at least 20% upside um, uh, from the strike price to our, to our fundamental fair value. Um, but we would keep the premium, which that 3%, say on a 1% position, let's call our now, size of the fund, you know, $2 billion. So literally, we're, we're keeping $600,000 of premium, okay? And that's really the point of differentiation in terms of how we enter. But as you say, it drives three key outcomes, which I'll come on to. But you also asked, hey, what, why do it this way? What's, what's, the, what's the rationale and, and what's the philosophical backing? The key reason we're using the options is reju- is to reduce risk. Okay, there's two things here. Firstly, it really comes out of an asset and liability mindset. So the smoothness of, of returns, you've got fixed kind of spending down the line, be that retirement, be that things that you want to be able to do with the money, be that a charity foundation or, or kids' school fees or holiday, whatever it is. And you've got this greater certainty of being able to match those liabilities. It's not relying on the capital component. Um, And the second key reason is philosophically, listen, forget equities alone. In any asset class, when you put money into that asset class, you're putting capital at risk. And the things that can drive that risk are very difficult and unknowable effectively on an ongoing basis. What am I talking about here? You're talking about, well, unfortunately, geopolitics is, you know, in the top of a lot of people's minds, but you're talking about interest rate risk, you're talking about um, growth risk, regulation, taxation, cross-border policy, and so on. So all these big macro risks. And we want to be paid explicitly for putting our clients and our own capital at risk. And then we want to generate an idiosyncratic return in the individual security. And that's really the philosophical reason that we do what.
0: Yeah, it's quite interesting. And for a lot of people out there, they're not familiar with how option strategies work or they've heard about them. Um, it, it's quite an interesting ability to you know, take a view and then go, you know what? Don't know what's going to happen in the next two months. Many things can happen. Look at what's happened with COVID and black swan events everywhere. And then also, you know, in that interim to go, well, we're still holding our clients money. We still want to be earning any income for that potential two months where if something may occur. So it's quite interesting, but in, in saying that, then the, the obvious question, which I always get, is Murdoch. That sounds great. Strategy sounds fantastic, but how does that actually translate into uh, performance and past performance? What does that actually mean? So, uh, commonly, people refer to that in the in our world as beta. You know, how does that relate to you know how do you perform in comparison to the the market underlying uh, the benchmark which you use, um, and then. More importantly, you know, does the, is this strategy uh, very, very good in a bullish market? Is it better in a bearish market? And then, what's been your um, average returns since inception? And you know, how's the past couple of years been? Okay,
1: great.
0: Quite simply, how does that translate into what's going into my pocket if I stick money with your firm?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Listen, um, I will obviously love to answer that, but equally, I think there is also let's do, can I dial it back from that slightly because listen. All, all employees at Telaria are invested in the firm. Like I said, it's it's a founder-owned and led business, so we own the firm. We think it's the single best way to run our own money, which is why we do it, And we, um, but we recognise in the greater sense of, of our clients, we play a role in portfolios. You know, no-one has a single kind of strategy, right, or, or all their money in, in one basket, as it were. Um, so I think before getting into the numbers, which I'd love to answer, um, We have three distinct outcomes which actually help in portfolio construction, and a lot of clients of ours, I think, um, judge us on those outcomes. Now, the three things that we get from this implementation strategy, you name-checked one. We have a second lever of returns, okay, which is about this payment in terms of the aggregation of those premiums I was talking about. And typically, that's been around about 600 basis points of return per annum in a normalized environment. So I'm talking about the last three years, for example, we've made you know, a little over 600 basis points of return for our investors from this second lever of return. Now, crucially, that lever goes up when uncertainty rises because obviously the cost of insurance is really dictated by the level of uncertainty. Model. So that happens to be the case where uncertainty rises, typically in equity markets, results in capital values falling. OK, so we've got this offsetting return driver. So that's a first key thing, which means in terms of our, um, our downside capture and upside capture over the life of the fund since the unit trust in 08, you know, that's been about a 34% downside capture. OK, and the upside capture has been you know comfortably over 70. So we, we lose less when the market goes down and we capture the majority of the market's gains. The second key thing, which is in and of itself, is this structurally lower downside capture that I talked about. And the third key thing, because you've got this contracted rate of return, you have materially lower volatility, okay? Now, I think for a lot of listeners, you know, talking about 300 basis points, lower volatility than an index won't really resonate. Let's take it back to real world examples here. Most fund managers and fund management houses, they're in the business of raising assets, right? That's actually the incentive of, of the industry for, for fund managers. What advisors and, and people who have the savings care about is not this sort of time series return. So here's my five-year number or my 10-year number. What they care about is how does a strategy perform when they've got their money in it. Now, that's a small nuance, but it's crucially different. And I think if you go back to that really famous Magellan story, so Peter Lynch, who built Fidelity really off the Magellan Fund, you know, he compounded over 20% for well over 20 years. And yet, when you build up the flows, the aggregate investor experience was less than zero, right? It's really hard to believe that. If you do the same analysis of the largest four global fund managers by assets raised in Australia over the last five years, and you look at the time series returns, but then you look at the discrepancy between when people put their money in, they're vastly different. And the point of that of, of that um, description or, or example is to say, if you do 10%, 10%, 10%, 10%, 10% every client gets 10%. If you do up 30, down 10, up 20, etc., to get a five-year annualized number of 10%, the money in aggregate, the IRR, effectively, won't be 10%. And that's the value of lower volatility in a practical sense to your listeners. Okay, so they're the three key outcomes that we generate. And a lot of people use this for a range of those outcomes. So that second lever of returns, that can be actually distributed as income. So we have a pretty high, sustainable, differentiated source of income, which is paid quarterly. You know, so for a lot of people who are looking to diversify away from the Australian share market, which obviously has a relatively high dividend yield compared to the rest of the world, plus some tax advantages, um, you know, that means foregoing uh, income potentially for capital. Whereas actually, that's not the case for investors who are using the Tolaria Global Equity Strategy as an income engine and diversification from income, because it's not dependent on the business cycle. Remember, dividends are ultimately at the discretion of management, and quite often when you need income the most, they're they're sensibly reducing that payout to, to shareholders because of the level of uncertainty or the cash requirements in the business. That's not the case if you're relying on income from the strategy that we employ. OK, um, but the second key thing in that volatility and downside capture, as someone who runs an overall portfolio or a saver who's got multiple investments, you may feel that long term uh, growth equities will do much better than value. You know, the world's changing, AI, all the, all the stuff that we're probably pretty familiar with at the moment. Or you may feel that small caps, you know, ultimately are much better valued and, you know, ability to generate you much greater capital growth over the medium term. But actually, I need to be able to hold that journey because it's a lot more volatile. So I need to blend that with something that allows me to stick to that because of that requirement um, to be able to compound and hold the position. So we blend up pretty well with that. And actually, um, we're humble enough to recognize a lot of people who've um, trusted us with their money. You know, it's ultimately to free up some more of their risk budget because, you know, I, I need to blend it with a whole range of things. So, you know, traditionally, that's the 60-40 portfolio, right? I'm going to have bonds so that I don't, well, you know, actually, the majority of history, bonds and equities have been positively correlated. And we've seen seen the havoc that that's wreaked on portfolios over the last three, three to four years, right? Um, whereas, hey, here's a strategy, low volatility, low drawdown, but actually allows me to stick to the path. So, I think before the absolute returns, the vast majority of our clients, Murdoch, I think really judge us on, on the combination of those outcomes. Getting explicitly to your question though, hey, what's, what's okay, sounds interesting, a bit different. There's got to be an opportunity cost, right? And that's what you talked about in terms of the beta and the upside capture. So over the life of the fund, it's been about, we've had about in, per $100 of client money, We've had about 55 has been in direct stocks and shares so we've owned. So we've got exercised and we own about $55 fifty-five of direct equity. We've had about $30, which is this cash backing the commitment to buy shares we want to own at this never less than 15% contracted rate of return. So the options component implementation to, to reduce risk. And we've had about 15% cash as, as you would understand it in any other strategy. And that varies obviously over the cycle and and at various points but that's in aggregate what's happened if you look at our rolling three-year return profile you know i mean month to month or year to year is a relatively short so we, that's our average holding period so we look at that over the rolling three-year period when markets start to be if, if the index was to give you you know double digit per annum returns over a rolling three-year period the truth Mathematically, is that that $30 where we get this contracted rate of return would be better off if you had perfect foresight directly exposed to the equity market. So the opportunity cost is higher than the benefit that we generate. Okay. And that is ultimately the opportunity cost. Now, um, that means that our investors are getting the highest absolute experience, the best absolute experience in those moments. It's just that with perfect foresight, if you were sitting in Delphi, you know, Oracle on the Mount, you could have done better, okay? And that's really the, the opportunity cost of the strategy. As soon as you drop down to, you know, 8 9% per annum in terms of annualised returns in equity markets over three years, that opportunity cost completely starts to drop away. And the more negative the returns, the greater the relative contribution because of this second lever where you're not just dependent on you talked about beta, as you captured the beta as, a, as an index, but also if you're in a in a managed fund, you know you're not just relying on the alpha generation of the you know smartest person in the room to be able to offset that beta component of coming down.
0: No, and I and I really appreciate that. And look, I think it even comes back to why I call this podcast the rate of change. Like the rate of change is, is a mathematical formula. It just refers to the speed at which you know something changes from going up down and then I back up again right and look the main reason why I do these podcasts I just find it so interesting speaking to people like yourself and to uh, shine some light on different strategies is exactly what you're talking about the 60-40 portfolio which we all started we've all told this is gospel this is how it is well guess what coming into COVID interest rates near zero bonds didn't pay anything then we've seen this gigantic boom of private lending Right. So, the, 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 and then there's another expression um, in life the only constant thing in life is change, or one of the only constant things in life is change. So, when we speak, uh, you know, with investors or clients or high end family offices, it's very interesting the point that you're making, as in some people just want stability. They want stability, certainty, or the ability to have, you know, participate in some upside whilst, you know, leasing out the other side. That's fantastic. That's where the core comes into it right? But then the, but the other thing which I've never enjoyed is when one one investor or manager goes, oh, this strategy is horrendous. You go, hold on a second. That particular strategy did very, very well. Why? Because they were printing money <laughs> and assets, you know, and it, it went through the roof. But now considering that that money has been withdrawn from the market, those assets don't do well anymore, right? So I would actually, the reason we do this is I want to shine a light on There are cards which you can play depending on the global macroeconomic and microeconomic environment. And people just need to know, okay, in the back of my mind, if conditions are doing this particular way, where, as you said, who's who in the zoo? First of all, everyone needs to understand uh, who we can choose from and then understand when to play their cards. So if I'm understanding you correctly, um, Talaria fits in that band where essentially you can use them, uh, you know, continuously. And, and which is great. Um, so any thoughts to that?
1: Well, listen, I mean, the way that I think about it is if you're doing 10.5% per annum, you're going to double your money every seven years, okay? So I think, you know, particularly in such a large um, savings pool in Australia in retail, thanks to the good kind of governance of, of superannuation ultimately, I think it's got to be a goals-based approach, Right. And I think if you can work out, so how do, how, I mean, I'm not saying that everyone will be happy with doubling it only every seven years. I want to double it in five years or, you know, maybe I'll double it in nine years, right? But, you know, I'm, I'm 50, uh, life expectancy, you know, whatever it is for once you get to 50 is 85. So I've got another 35 years. So, you know, my wealth will be fivefold, compound of fivefold, right? It's not 500%. It's double every seven years from that to, to when I die right? If I do 10.5%. And if I can start with 600 basis points and um, where I lose m- less money when the market goes down, and let's say that I'm adept um, from a personality point of view from losing, that it doesn't worry me about losing money. I understand markets go up and down. But the key thing is I've got more money working for me in the ups. That's, that's why it's important. You know, I mean, let's go back. You asked about the recent experience of the fund. <clears throat> you know, 2022, a lot of the, the you know, a lot of the big seven, right, that people were talking about, you know, a stock going down, um, down, a uh, stock doubling sounds like, a, uh, sounds a whole lot better than a stock that halved. But they're the same thing, right? I mean, a lot of those stocks halved in 2022, and they doubled last year. Where do, where do you end up on that maths? You end up at the same level that you started at. Whereas because of, Some of the tailwinds of 2022, um, you know, this is a strategy, the Talaria Global Equity Strategy was able to generate um, 8.5% absolute return. Now, last year, the market did 20, and let's forget about leadership and why that is. That's what it was, you know, it was sort of about a 20. Um, We did about 12.5. Now, 12.5 on 108.50 versus you know, 20 on 85, if you just went in line with the benchmark in terms of indexes down in, in 2022, you don't have to be a genius at maths to work out that you've got a lot more money doing 12 and a half on 108.50 than you do doing 20 on 85. So I think, you know, setting your goals, working out um, a portfolio. So that's the first thing, right? Where, where am I trying to get to? And I think this strategy gives you as good a chance as any to be able to compound your real wealth over time. And we've run the strategy, as I said, in the unit trust since 08. And, you know, the firm the strategy in terms of using this options component started in 05. So we've done it for quite a long time. I think the second key thing I'd say then is, hey, you know, we touched on uncertainty. All investors are dealing with uncertainty. By definition, the, the future is uncertain. So, um, what you're trying to do then is you're trying to where possible and you know this sounds like what you're doing on behalf of your clients is you're trying to build a portfolio that gets rid of as much diversifies away all the possible risk that it can okay And then of course there's a residual of risk and uncertainty that that is just um, what makes being human brilliant <laughs> but makes kind of being an investor difficult you can't You can't alchemy away all risk and so on, right? We're not at a craps table where the odds mean that you could actually hedge out everything, but you'll make nothing. I mean, nobody's in the market for that. Um, So I think it's about constructing portfolios where you recognise the inherent uncertainty of the future and use the benefits of diversification to be able to reduce um, relying on having some view or other of the future, because broadly I, I don't think anybody's got a crystal ball that works, right? And I think it's, um, the third key component, where we sort of fit in in that, is that we actually benefit from uncertainty. So I think intuitively, I find the strategy easier. Just as just me, <laughs> there's far cleverer people who are invested with this than me. Um, is that I really think about it as an insurance analogy, right? And you know, we're spending all our time analysing the collateral. So that's the company's opportunity set, right? Before writing the insurance. And insurance generally, as a whole industry, is tremendously profitable. And in equity markets, it's tremendously profitable because it's a sustainable risk premium. And the reason it's sustainable as a risk premium, and this helps you diversify, is because it's behaviorally driven. So investors in equity markets always have a positive skew. It's a growth asset, right? They're looking for the upside. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in equities, right? So they overpay for the downside protection. The second key thing is we know that uh, dealing with uncertainty is psychologically difficult, you know. So um, I've travelled an awful lot over the course of my life professionally but also I've been lucky enough to travel a bit personally as well. I took the kids to New Zealand last year. So I've never claimed travel insurance. I, I took the kids to New Zealand last year and... You know, of course, I paid the 250 bucks travel insurance because the idea of watching my daughter on the trampoline and thinking, oh, my gosh, if she breaks her leg, how am I going to get her out of here and blah, 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 it's just not worth dealing with from an uncertainty point of view or we're going to go whitewater rafting and she's uninsured. I'm just not going to do that. You know, and in the same way in equity markets that the majority of investors are very poor at dealing with uncertainty. So they overcompensate to take them out of that psychologically difficult place. And then the third key thing which you know professionally but also your listeners know is losing $10 is psychologically very different from making $10. Okay? They're Okay, not the same thing and therefore they overpay you for providing the perception that, um, uh, that you insulate them from that risk. And that's why that risk premium is very, very, very stable in terms of that. It's, it's called the volatility risk premium, the difference between the implied volatility and the realized. And the implied volatility is all those anxieties ultimately that are driven that um, mean that the implied volatility is higher than the realized volatility. And it's that, it's that spread that allows us to make that 600 basis point stable return that goes up when uncertainties go up. We get paid for doing more of the same. We get paid more for doing the same thing. So I think that's a third kind of way that I think about that. Um, in terms it's, of- it's very,
0: it's very interesting you're making these, um, these points because, we, we discussed the 60 40 portfolio, and then someone said to me, and it just made so much sense. I've been doing this ever since, so I actually refer to it now as correlated, uh, the correlated part of the bucket, like which is offense, and then the defense, which is we're trying to generate an income, which is uncorrelated to, you know, market volatility. And, you know, as you said, goal based investing, well, we need to look at it backwards as in, you know, people have costs, you have, you know, what are your bills? What are your families? It's, it's not cheap. Joey's down the road is 50 grand. When I left Joey's, it was 22,000 uh, for year 12. Like and bills are just racking up with inflation. So when you're looking at someone's uh, life, having the ability to go, right, I need to pay these bills. What assets do I have available that have the ability, as you said, with insurance or a level of protection where we can, we, we know roughly we can generate this level of result in, I don't know, depending on their risk, you know, what that percentage they want to take. Someone might want to do 80% of it. Some person might want to do 20%. That's, that's everyone else's prerogative. But then let's be honest, human beings, you know, like having a view, like having a flutter. That's, you know, look at Australia, we're just gamblers, unfortunately, right? Good or bad, the ugly, love of races. But that's the reason why as well, the offensive, you know, part of the, the world is important because no one knows what's going to happen tomorrow, and that's hope and that's exciting, um, which I've always found. But yeah, look back to um, Talaria again. I do think what you guys are doing is very, very interesting in the uncorrelated, as you said, you get a low beta to markets where we can you can have a conversation with someone and then potentially forecast out what, as you, uh, from a goals based perspective, you know what they can potentially get which I always find quite interesting. So in, in, in saying that, let's, get, let's dig into um, the fun part, which is uh, you know what opportunities you're seeing. Is there anything uh, interesting that you've been buying or anything on the horizon?
1: Firstly, um, just to, to engage, oh, I'll answer that, but just to engage a couple of things you said there, absolutely, when you talk about your clients and school fees, I mean, that there's these wellness liabilities, right? And they're all personally defined, but you went school fees or whatever. And that's exactly what I was talking about. And I've got a certain asset. And, you know, our biggest asset, depending on your age, is obviously your human capital. You know, I have an income. I can generate kind of returns from my human capital. I'm a a really well-respected plumber or lawyer. You know, I, I have a capital base in that sense. Plus, I have these savings. But it's exactly that mindset that really was right there at the inception of the strategy. I've got an asset and I've got a liability. And, you know, if, if the liability, if the asset doesn't perform at the wrong moment, then maybe a kid can't go to accept that university place, right? I mean, that, they, these are real things. Um, or I couldn't afford to go to my, you know, my brother's wedding in, in Brazil, right? Whatever it is. So I absolutely agree with, with what you're saying in, in, in that regard. Um, in terms of the, uh, the opportunity set, Listen, the reality is, it's relatively slow for us at the moment. Um, And I think that that's to be expected. So just going right back to our sort of, you know, core bottom up process, you know, if we're talking about a normalized level of kind of returns in individual securities, and of course, we analyze the nearest two or three peers to get a sense of the industry, but also the profitable dynamic of, of of the nearest competitors. You know, we're in a world where you know, whole economy profits as a percentage of GDP are are pretty close to record, okay? Your secondly, you know, profit margins at companies are are pretty close to the record. I mean, they've come down over the last 18 months. They're still very, very high. And if you think about what's driven that over the last decade, it's not really been about, well, some of it's been about growth, but some of it's really been about about 100 basis points of what's around about an 11% bottom line margin is because of falling interest charges. Well, you don't have to be a genius to think that that's not going to be a tailwind going forward. We can argue about whether it's going to be a big headwind, that's a different thing, but it's not going to be the tailwind. We've had about 100 basis points of falling um, falling um, charges from tax. You know, that's contributed. And then you've had falling depreciation charges because companies haven't actually been investing in the, in the fixed asset base, really, in aggregate. Okay. So all of those things, when you work in a process, it's about normalized, means that if you're looking at whole economy profits at the aggregate, pretty high relative to history, how is it then that I could come on and tell you, Murdoch, that we're generating hundreds of ideas? Like that would be not commensurate, right? And the reason that the corporate profits um, um, pool has been so high is really just an accounting identity. Just remember that corporate profits are really just a, um, a reflection of net national savings minus investment. That's just, that's not an interpretation. That's an accounting identity. That's maths. And of course, we've been running record deficits uh, in terms of, you know, post-pandemic and we really haven't wound any of that back. The rate of change is gone, but of course the absolute deficit is still going up higher and that's allowed the corporate profit um, pool to be abnormally high. So in aggregate, no, we're not generating a lot of ideas, new ideas. Um, we continue, we've had about 15% of the portfolio in Japan that continues to be a relatively fertile ground for, uh, ideas that move through the process. It doesn't necessarily mean that they move into the portfolio when we socialize the idea. Um, but, uh, we continue to see more ideas that progress further in Japan than pretty much any other region. Uh, so do you mind
0: if I just ask you, you mentioned Japan and, um, I grew up in I go playing games. It's just our generation, right? Nintendo, you know Pokemon, all this type of stuff. There's a new game launched called uh, Power World World, which is completely ripped off Pokemon. But and there's another you know the old Nintendo, which is out of Japan, like someone built one through all the games in it. But I was reading somewhere that in the past, when someone's ripped off a game, it's in America and in the West community, everyone gets sued four million dollars. You know, they're completely harpooned. Is it true that in Japan there's something about, No copyright. Because I've heard there's companies literally in Japan ripping off, say, Nintendo or the gaming industry, and there's just no recourse. I don't know much about the the Japanese market. And you said you've got 15% of the portfolio in in the Japanese market. I was just curious. Is it just a whole different playing... Filled in um, Japan?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be comfortable actually talking about that in terms of publisher rights, Murdoch. I would like to hear more about. You sound a bit defensive about Pokemon being ripped off, though. So I'd like to hear. You're <laughs> <feel> like almost <laughs> oh, the nerve there. Um, yeah, touched but, it. was just like as a kid? <laughs> <laughs> um, listen, I don't know in terms of publishing rights. I mean, you know, clearly Sony's, a, Sony, Nintendo's, a big publishers. So I'd be very surprised. Um, you know, they've got embedded kind of platforms, haven't they, from the consoles and so on, but. Um, Yeah, that that I don't know. I mean, clearly there's global patents on, you know, Takeda's a a pharmaceutical company. It's not like they're unprotected. It's, you know, Mitsubishi Electric who does factory automation. They would have patents. But in terms of publishing rights, I don't know. I have a look into that.
0: I was just curious. Sorry, as soon as you said 15%, my (laughs) brain went Japan. An article which I read. But no, please, please continue (laughs) about what you're seeing as opportunities instead of, you know, me going on. You know, obviously something got under my goat. (laughs)
1: um yeah we've we've i mean obviously last year um u.s utilities in particular really really poor sector so a few things have started to come through the screen that are worthwhile there so we've recently initiated a position in uh, a midwest utility so um called WEC. you know they're pretty much dominant in in um wisconsin they're a little bit in illinois as well um, you know, that's a regulated asset base. They're allowed to grow that around about 5% to 7% per annum. They've got a 70% payout ratio, um, you know, so you're getting... And then they're levered about three times, right, between the debt and equity side. So, you know, you've got a, you've got a dividend yield of, you know, over 4%. Um, they've had an excellent um, track record as, as an operator, and they're allowed to take, and the payout ratio is about seventy cents on the dollar to to underpin that four point three percent dividend yield. And then that thirty cents in the dollar is levered about three times into the regulated asset base, where they're allowed to get about a ten and a half percent regulated rate of return. Um, and that should drive, you know, five to seven percent growth. So, you know, that's a pretty stable, good business that should be able to generate, in a fair value sense, you know, twenty five percent upside. And as you hold it for a period of time. You know, you're just going to be compounding in that high single-digit figure. So this isn't something that I'm going to tell your listeners is going to double. Um, but that looks a, um, a pretty good investment. Having come down from around about 100, you know, we're committing to buy it in about 75. Um, so that's kind of the first thing. Um, the second thing I talked about, we've just taken a small initial position in Subaru, um, which has about 40% on our um, forecast going forward on the cash side or we'll have about 40% of the market cap in in cash. They are a relatively small producer, obviously, in total number of cars. So they have about a 10% market share in the SUV category in, in North America. That's really where they're extremely strong. Um, so that's a category that has been growing pretty consistently, about uh, 50% of, of um, uh, light vehicles and cars sold in North America are in the SUV category. So actually, they've got a really strong position in in one of the better markets globally. Um, the company has been extremely profitable in the past and the margins have come down. Um, that's a function really of um, not they haven't lost any market share, um, but slightly in terms of their a product mix, but also they've been investing, obviously, and in rolling over into the um, electric vehicle market. They've JV'd with uh, Toyota there, really on the battery side. And one of the things that makes us much more comfortable because the issue around a lot of traditional automakers is they're actually huge financial services companies with a manufacturing business attached, right? I mean, you know, it's all about financing and so on, and so bad loans and the leverage in that side. Um, can be a really difficult place to analyze. Say something like BMW is, is tough to analyze that and, you know, opens up our investors to greater levels of uncertainty and risk. Whereas they've got, Subaru's got the lowest level of customer financing of any of the consumer brands in North America. So, you know, clients are buying the product rather than um being induced through a financial incentive really to buy the product. So regarding yeah.
0: purchasing the product, COVID had um, very, very extensive wait times. Have you, uh, since you've been doing a lot of work in this, um, And uh, has those wait times been reduced or is that now just a legacy problem which we have to deal with?
1: No, that's, yeah, the supply chain issues that really dominated COVID and this is why we saw, you know, I mean, I drive a 1999 car. We've only got one in the family. I'm just not really a car person. And uh, when I bought that about six years ago, so it was, a, I thought, you know what, this is only about 17 years old. This is a bargain. It was like about six grand. And uh, when I bought the car and it's tripled, you know, to your yeah. point in terms of the COVID. But no, the supply chain issues are starting to work through. They're not completely done. Um, we had uh, Toyota results fairly recently um, saying that they were coming to the end of them. But it's really the componentry, I think, that's still the issue. And of course, you've got an overlay as well where because of what happened in COVID, um, if you think about the last 20 years in business and, you know, people who do MBA, it was really about um, cash management. So it was about getting supply chains as long and as thin as singular as possible so that your, your working capital management was much, much tighter. And the reality now, of course, is they recognize if there was a company in, you know, what, Taiwan. Yeah, Taiwan or, or Ukraine that, you know, yeah just did the washer for the windscreen wiper for the car, well, if you can't get that, then the whole car can't go out. So that's that's. it's been slightly about re-engineering the supply chain as well as access to product, I think, but that has pretty much worked its way through. And we're seeing, I wouldn't want to give you the exact number of inventory days that we're seeing in global auto, but historically I know it was around about 59 to 60 was fairly typical. Um, so I just want to check that. But, yeah, it's it's, it's normalising. Yeah, I mean, another another stock that's relatively new in the portfolio is Medtronic, which is um, a US medical devices company. It's been a dividend aristocrat. Um, they had, funnily enough, some supply chain issues within the company, which really impacted both the earnings, but also the sort of cash management of the business. And effectively, the stock's derated off the back of the, the supply chain issues. Um, they've recently hired a, um, uh, a new manager to really... Run the whole um, logistics and, and supply chain, and re-engineer that, and reduce down the number of sites in which they're operating. Um, so it's really it's recently kind of at the point traded down to a, uh, a five-year low PE valuation. There's no they've got market-leading positions either number one or two in everything they do. So they're particularly strong in in the heart um, Medtronic, and you know clearly that's a growth area over time and demographics. Um, so that's a, that's a recent addition as well where you know, some of the issues that we were talking about in the auto industry have been able to afford us an opportunity in, in different sectors and we think they'll be able to um, take control of them um, from a medium term point of view, but their market position, pricing and product portfolio is totally unimpacted. So it's really a function that their earnings momentum in a, in a world where you started to see some sectors get up or individual stocks get upgrades and some get downgrades and, and relatively punished or rewarded. They've been punished, but we don't think the earnings power of the company has really fundamentally changed.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite interesting you're discussing the specifics of companies, and I suppose the one question I really have just looking at the past five years, um, do you think that CEOs are now looking at their balance sheet and going not about how much growth can we get at any price, but not even growth at a reasonable price, but they're just trying to get cash flow and improve the profit margins of these businesses so they're going to be around for when the next opportunities arise. Do you think the mentality has changed with how these CEOs are running their businesses?
1: Well, I should say that as part of our process, we deliberately don't meet management. Um,
0: I didn't know that. So you don't meet management at all?
1: No. We think that there's as many behaviors. Why is
0: that? Because a lot of people say, hey, you know, we get to meet the managers and et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah. So there's a couple of reasons I could talk about us. So let's go back, though, to, you know, where we were talking about um, portfolio construction, the yeah. diversification, and then this unquantifiable kind of risk component residual that you're left with. You know, the traditional, uh, there's still an awful lot of money left with active managers, albeit you know, the market share has been reducing with, with passive. But if you're in using an active manager, right, the vast majority of the pitch by the active manager is that uh, I'm a very clever person and I, my competitive advantage is that I have some different degree of access. And quite often that access to knowledge, right? And typically that access is, is couched in terms of management. You know, we do 3,000 management meetings a year and so on. If you statistically distribute who's performed how and who how many meetings they've done, I would challenge anybody to suggest that there's a strong pattern. So the person who did no meetings, so let's think Renaissance Capital, <laughs>
0: like you know. Yeah, I only just—I can't believe I haven't learned about that one. I found out about Renaissance Capital about six or seven months ago, and someone told me that they've averaged what nearly thirty percent since inception for. How long? Yeah. And they've got, how many stocks is in the portfolio? This is 750 or like 1,000? It's incredible.
1: Um, but the point is, even within active management, um, do you, um, you know, there, is, there a, is there a line of best fit that's positively sloping between most meetings and least meetings? No. Okay? So we, like everybody else, have 24 hours in a day, Murdoch, and it's really from our point of view, where do we get the highest return? Uh, on our time in terms of, you know, we, all we have in this in this industry and, and at Solaria is human capital. So um, everything's, you can learn from everything and everything can be of value, but we think that the behavioural risks uh, around meeting management relative to how else we can spend our time are much higher. So what do I mean by that? Um, you know, you think about all the issues about um, meeting management. Firstly, we know some of the worst atrocities of human history have been created because of, um, you know, people's preponderance to, to follow and believe authority figures. Well, you know, if I'm meeting the CFO or, or CEO of, of Microsoft, I mean, they're, they're clear or senior management at any of the companies that we invest in, you know, they're real authority figures in, in their industry. Um, uh, the second thing is, you know, studies show that it's not only that we hear uh, confirmation bias, so we hear what we want to hear, it's that everything that is said, merely reconfirms what we want to know okay so that's a sort of second example of a bias um you know third thing listen it's uh you know psychological studies have shown that people are almost impossible at determining who's telling the truth and who's lying and so you get in the situation of saying okay the you know the capex phase or the acquisition phase is over and we're going to start returning cash to shareholders and then you know, six weeks' time they go and do a big acquisition. You say, Oh, they lied to me. It's like, Yeah, of course well they did, you know. Um and the fourth thing is very different from when I started in the industry. Um, you know, there is regulations. I mean travel previously CFOs and CEOs would tell you uh non public information that was market moving. As in Oh, you talked in the last quarter about, you know, two percent volume and one percent price, and the CFO would say to you mid quarter, Oh, no, 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 it's much it's going to be much better than that uh, because that wasn't illegal, you know, and clearly, you know, public disclosure rules have changed over the course of my career. So, New, Chris
0: Mine cha- New Chris Mines changed all that.
1: <laughs> yeah. So there's a whole range of issues where meeting management can be problematic. I guess the way that I would pithily sum it up is that we're numbers over narrative. The single best way to judge what company management and, and corporations do is by you Know forensically looking at the annual reports, financial statements, and, and looking, you know, in, in the data of what they do rather than what they tell you what they do. Um, because well, they- on the back of
0: the run from the Magnificent Seven, and as you said, more data driven, I would be it'd be terrible not to discuss the role that artificial intelligence is, is playing in, um, you know, the investing world, the ability to get information, process information, and, and analyze these things. I would love to hear your opinion on you know, the role that AI is playing in, say, Solaria's business or what you think the impact's going to have um, for exactly the reasons which you just said.
1: Yeah, there's a couple of things there in terms of um, clearly, you know, because of the valuations and our approach, you know, we don't own stocks specifically uh, that may come to mind exposed to the AI theme. But I think the framework that we kind of look at it through, because clearly we're, we're cognizant of it in terms of the potential positive and negative impacts on our portfolio companies, is firstly, I think, um, think of an X and Y axis. And one thing you've got, rules versus discretion. Okay, so, um, you know, think about uh, an accountant, uh, or, or, you know, there's a there's a tax code that is actually, you know, just. Hard rules compared to, you know, a lawyer involved in a civil case, where that's kind of much more subjective, and they may talk about, "Hey, we're going to argue it on this basis." There's not, um, there's not those hard rules. So there's a sliding scale, and clearly, the more rules-based kind of component or industries or um, are more subjected to, um, to AI compared to those that are subjective. And then the second thing is the customer experience, you know how much of that is, where on the scale is that between in-person and where is that on the scale of kind of, um, you know, mass delivery? Because, you know, um, so when you think about it in those terms, you know, a, you know, a, a US kind of listed um, uh, restaurant group, for example, you know, clearly less at risk from AI in the sense of, you know, that their product is, is ultimately served in-person one way or another. It's a, it's a, you know, customer experience. But on the other side, in terms of all the things that go into producing food in a, in a um, profitable and efficient way, a lot of that is actually um, very much rules-based. You know, delivery of quantities, ordering, supply chain management, um, accounting, cash management, and so on. So they can actually benefit. So that's often how we sort of think about that matrix. I did like the... So that, that's from a portfolio and markets point of view in terms of our companies. In terms of the, the, business, the, the more philosophical question in the industry, um, you know, I really liked the description recently where it says, you know, a fund manager's job is ultimately you're sitting at a, at a bus stop and, you know, a bus is meant to come every 15 minutes and, you know, no bus has come for 45 minutes. So effectively, three buses haven't come. Now, does that mean that the old adage is that, you know, three buses will come along all at once or does it mean that the, the Flinders Street Bridge has fallen down? And of course, AI is not going to help you understand which of those two things is, is, um, is true and yet it has huge implications. So I do think that there's a role for, you know, subject, subjective, um, subjective decision making, clearly in, in the investment process because of those things. But I think the speed of the market has sped up because of AI as well. You know, if you when I started, the average holding period in the market was about six and a half years. And I think it's down to about, oh, it's less than six months now is the average holding period of an equity in the U.S. equity market. So clearly, um, you know, uh, trading on information and the speed of calculation, funnily enough, has opened up an opportunity for, for value managers like ourselves because value is playing a less and less, cognizant role in a lot of investment processes than when I started. So I think there's, there's threats and opportunities. In terms, of, um, in terms of Telaria, the business itself, um, that's kind of a work in progress. I think that we're relatively uh, recent in terms of the investment team. Um, so things like um, uh, meeting notes, I would write a weekly for myself. You know, the ability to be able to analyze um, the common traits in, in what I'm writing to myself every week on, you know, analyze what are the last year's things that you'll kind of effectively be able to learn or take out from what's kind of a journaling process, really. Um, and what can that tell you about the biases? We can analyze, you know, with a lot more speed and accuracy, I guess, our own decision making process of when we buy and sell things and how... We scale and size things, which I think is an important um, development because clearly you're trying to iterate your process. I mean, we always did that, but I think AI allows you to, you know, take a lot more data and um, counterfactual outcomes and and analyze what they may be in a less data um, uh, human capital intensive way. Um, But, you know, and, and the distribution side and client service side, you know, that's still probably driven on that, you know, personally deliverable and mass customization and I think we're still probably a lot more on the um, on the customer focus side of that so I think that's a that's a work in progress how do you use it in your own business model?
0: oh uh, well you know it makes me look incredibly intelligent when writing articles right but more importantly I just like asking you questions and then the, the information which you, which you get from it you know how many people have said that is potentially better than a master's degree <laughs> So it, that's look. I find it incredibly interesting across the board. Now, now it's thrown in the question. Like you know, we got kids. Uh, you both of us have kids. Like now they're being educated in the school systems. Remember when we were coming up, it was like here's a whole bunch of formulas, and hopefully in life you might need them. Yeah. But now it's actually. Hold on a second. You know, it's more about understanding comprehension, teamwork, and how do you do this. But unfortunately, education systems not catching up. Or hasn't caught up yet. And the thing that I always think about is, um, you know, I've been doing a lot about uh, speaking to people about who buy businesses and what they look for. And one, of the, one person said to me, very interestingly, is uh, what do you, what's the number one thing you look for when buying a business? He goes, a fax machine. Just the okay. entire concept of a fax machine, as in they understand it, but the people buying 20 year 30 year what's a t- fax machine? No one's got a clue, but if you still have a fax machine in your business, then that has the potential to be modernized, improved, made more efficient, doing exactly the same thing, loyal customer base, improved all the way through, and then potentially more profitable. It's just something so simple because you don't want to end up like Nokia. And then the reason why I'm asking the question uh, now is everyone's got ChatGPT, we've got access to it, but unfortunately the ones we have doesn't give you access to the internet or I can't type in, analyze you know, the S&P 500 against Microsoft and you know, work out when to buy and sell. It hasn't got to that stage yet. I'm assuming... And my, I suppose in the back of my mind, I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe do you have any mates that actually have access to that particular tool? Like, you know, maybe that's available for a particular echelon that's not available for the masses. And the other thing in my mind is, could you imagine if an AI tool was available for the masses about, you know, investing and what would that look like? So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, philosophical questions that are in my mind. And as you said, the one thing that's changed now is the pace. I which these things are accelerating. So I was just very interested to hear your opinion um, on what you're saying
1: and hear your thoughts. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I mean, I think you touched on something there that certainly does kind of bear in my mind, but this is perhaps not a, as a and this is just as a citizen, is, you know, clearly the pace of um, technological change is making it very hard for democratic institutions to be able to um, move at the same pace. I mean, there's no doubt that the I mean, studies have shown this, for example, and you you've got to believe in a degree of efficiency about capital allocation in in global, you know, from from the capitalist system, otherwise, and that incentives work and so on. Otherwise, you're not going to be involved in financial markets in a professional sense anyway. And yet, you know, over the course of my career, it's undoubtedly a true true statement to say that. Um, consolidation and um, monopoly power is only increased, you know, and there's a whole range of reasons for that. But, you know, the ability for democratic institutions to be able to respond to that um, is much, much, much slower, you know, and, and um, on the other side of that, you know, with the rise of kind of data and a oh, degree, in my view of technology fetishization, Uh, it means that technology can only and of itself be a good. I mean, you know, you look at Zuckerberg and his public statements are in many instances fairly repulsive to the average person, I would suggest, and certainly some of them in Australia would be illegal. And yes, he is sort of largely revered and thought of as someone who, you know, his, his answer to most things is, hey, listen, you know, if I didn't do it, someone else would. Well, that doesn't make something decent, does it? You know, so you talked about, the, the you know pedagogy and, and the education system not being able to keep up with the changing needs of, of you know our, our future colleagues and and citizens tomorrow but i think that that's true in a whole range of um of kind of core institutions that you know have been the foundation of, of kind of democratic societies right of which education is one but that's true of the justice system the legal system the democratic system and And I think we're seeing some of the the challenges to that.
0: Yeah, and, well, this is what creates markets, right?
1: Yeah, it is. It is. I also think that speed doesn't necessarily mean better, and that's where I was getting back to on investing with sense per se, is there is no doubt that the change in the structure of the market and the speed of information has meant that – uh, there's a tremendous amount of people in the market where valuation is a completely secondary or irrelevant component of their investment process. And that means that there'll be a whole range of securities that do not fulfill that criteria, whatever that is. Um, we talked about not having any earnings momentum. I mean, momentum over a long period of time has been, it's been about the fourth best, most efficient factor over you know the last 30 years. Um, but if there's more and more capital that's moving changing hands where valuation isn't a component then for people like ourselves that you know a core competency is really estimating cash flows and and coming up with an appropriate valuation for our clients money uh, that should provide more opportunities
0: it's a fascinating world we live in and 2024 looks like it's going to be incredibly interesting so with that in mind um, what's keeping you up at night and uh, what gets you out of bed in the morning
1: uh, what keeps me up at my night, I guess, is the unsustainable level of um, government debt, where we've seen, you know, the socialisation of debt, really starting with the GFC and then COVID, where it's gone from private sector and and be that individuals or corporates, just onto the public sector. And what worries me about that is there is no maths that means it's possible. That people, as in the citizens and, and people in general, in, in, each con- in many of the developed market countries will get what they feel they've been promised. Uh, and I think that that keeps me up at night. Um, so people are sort of expecting that they're going to get a whole range of goods and services in, in retirement or later in their life. And, you know, there is just simply no money for that. Um, so that's, that's probably what keeps me up at night. Um, and then the second key thing, what gets me up in the morning? um oh well the first thing that really motivates me to get up in the morning is 25 minutes of peace and quiet before everybody else gets up (laughs) uh yeah i mean i'm living i'm living the best possible life you know i don't have a work-life balance i got 24 hours every day and i'm doing something that i absolutely love and is a challenge and you know i feel privileged to be able to work on other people's behalf and um you know i've got i've got a wife who really loves me and i'm crazy about her and the kids seem healthy and vaguely interested in both of us so i don't know every day every day just feels a good one
0: and they're vaguely interested in both of us i think that's the goal to achieve when the kids hit their teens that's fantastic (laughs) (laughs) well um if anyone listening wants to learn more um what's the best way to um get a hold of you or find more information
1: yeah i think the best place is to go to the telaria capital website um we have a whole range of uh articles insights things that we've published there gives you a bit of background to the team and the individuals and our strategy and returns if if you were interested so i think that's probably where i would direct most people and um uh otherwise listen as i say our contact details are on there i always tell people that will you know um call call me because no one ever does so uh Yeah, we would be delighted to hear from anybody.
0: Call me because no one ever does. I think I'll nick that one. Well, (laughs) Q, I really appreciate you uh, coming on. I found it incredibly interesting um, as always. So thanks again and hope you have a great day.
1: Murdoch, same to you. I felt like we were just getting going and, yeah, look forward to doing it again in the future.
0: Well, the thing is, it's roughly about an hour, but, you know, Joe Rogan does it for three hours, maybe one day. (laughs) Yeah,
1: exactly. (laughs) You'll have to buy the Cuban cigars. Oh.
0: Absolutely. freaking <laughs> All right, have a good day.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Murder. Be well.
0: Any views expressed in this recording do not represent the view of any other third party and other sole personal opinions of the speaker. Any reference to financial product does not constitute advice or recommendation and before any action, you should seek proper advice from your financial professional. Australian listeners should head to www.moneysmart.gov.au to find more information on obtaining financial advice. To get in touch with York, head to our website www.yorkwealth.com.au.